0: Listening to Mastering Retention, presented by Userwise. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Mastering Retention podcast. Uh, today, we're super excited to have Karan from Firesco with us. Um, you know we've we've seen and heard a lot of stuff going on in India and and just making waves in the gaming industry so we're we're so excited to dig into that learn a little bit more about hyper casuals today uh Karan, i'd i'd love to hear you know your story how did you get into gaming uh, thanks for having me it's uh,
1: it's an absolute absolute pleasure um, okay i'll just start off by just giving my introduction So, I actually um, started off in gaming from a very early age. uh, Not in terms of playing games, but in terms (laughs) of getting into game development. Uh, I actually did uh, a course called Bachelor's of Science in Game Design from the University of Gloucestershire in the UK. After I got done with my course, I came back to India. I actually started a fantasy sports website. Um, We partnered with... um, with a sports publisher in, uh, in India to launch that website, uh, we didn't see a great amount of traction. So we decided to discontinue because it just wasn't uh, making sense from a financial perspective. After that, uh, I did a job at this uh, gaming company called games to win. Uh, I worked there for a period of six months and, uh, that's where I met the co-founder of my previous startup. Uh, my previous startup was called all in a Split. All-in-a-days play was making trivia and casual games mainly for uh, the Western audiences. this was back in 2013. So back in 2013, uh, the market was still fairly open. It was competitive, but it was still open. Uh, As an indie developer, you did not have to rely on uh, millions of dollars of uh, marketing budgets, you know? So... Uh, you could launch a game and if it was good, you could get organic traction if you were doing the right amount of, uh, the right kind of app store optimization um, and also making the right kind of games, um, filling the gaps in the market, basically. Yeah. Um, So, so we started all in a display. We saw a gap in the market. We, uh, we realized that uh, trivia games are extremely popular in the US especially, but there aren't that many uh, trivia games in the market and especially uh, trivia games are Reliant on the kind of content they have as well, Uh, we realized that not many games are covering a large amount of content. So we decided to launch uh, uh, a trivia game for like everything, everything under the sun. So literally, we did uh, uh, we did a football quiz, we did uh, guess the country, guess the flag, Mm. Um, we did uh, guess the car, literally everything. And we got uh, a great amount of organic traction. We started generating a lot of installs and. uh, this is without any marketing budget whatsoever. We started with with probably around four hundred dollars or so, and oh, wow. uh, yeah, and eventually managed to uh, scale up the company. And uh, we did around twenty million downloads across our portfolio in a span of around uh, five years. Um, wow. We did around three hundred thousand dollars in uh, in revenue, and um, and yeah, it um, it worked out. It worked out well for us um, as as a small uh, independent company. We did make a lot of mistakes as well when we were building that company. (laughs) So uh, we pursued this game called, uh, we tried to develop this PC game called Movie Studio Tycoon. Uh, We spent around two and a half years building it. And uh, we still never got to a point where we could release it. And eventually the game just got scrapped. Mm -hmm. Um, It was naivety in terms of, you know, our uh, development expertise. We were trying to chase a very big project when we should be doing, we should have been doing smaller games and should have just stuck to our strengths. So, yeah, and, um, and post on a day's play, I started another gaming company that's called FireScore Interactive. Um, uh, so, FireScore Interactive actually was started with the intention of targeting the Indian uh, gaming market. Hmm. Uh, so, real money gaming was uh, becoming huge in India. Uh, there was this fantasy, hmm. real money fantasy sports player called Dream Eleven that had become uh, extremely popular and uh, people were actually spending a lot of money which mm-hmm. is unheard of for Indian users. Yeah. So yeah. we thought, you know, uh, let's take that entire concept of fantasy sports, uh, of um, of the tournament-based system in fantasy sports, and let's apply it to uh, casual games, casual games in which users can compete against one another for uh, high scores. Yeah. So we, we did that. We built an entire application. Um, what we realized is... Uh, that, you know, while uh, this sort of tournament-based entry fee system was working well for fantasy sports, the same was not the case for uh, casual games. Mm. Uh, The difference was that casual games are um, extremely skill-based. So, if you're really good at it, it becomes very difficult for someone else to compete against you. (laughs) Uh, Whereas in fantasy sports, there is a luck factor involved too. So, people don't really get discouraged. So throughout this uh, process of trying to scale up the app, we saw a lot of drop-offs and uh, eventually we, d- we decided that, okay, you know, it's, it's probably not worth it. And, um, and, you know, we thought, okay, as a company, we were running out of money. Uh, what do we do next? Uh, we had built a few hyper-casual games in the past. Uh, they had not succeeded, um, but uh, we were improving as, as a studio. Uh, eventually we uh, got in touch with Crazy Labs, Uh, partnered with them uh, sent them uh, a couple of games to test in the market Uh, they failed their tests I'll get into the test uh, benchmarks later as well I'll get into more details regarding the tests Mm. that uh, hyper casual developers do Uh, but um, eventually our third game which was soap cutting passed all of these uh, benchmarks and uh, soap cutting went on to being published by Crazy Labs and Mm. currently uh, soap cutting has done over 50
0: million downloads wow that's awesome yeah well that's a a great story um you got Mm -hmm. the entrepreneurial Mm -hmm. spirit as you kind of go through you know those those different failures and stuff as you continue to learn and iterate and change uh i have a similar story uh so it's always always fun to hear those um yeah cool so You know, something that I, I love with your perspective is is you've started several game companies now, as well as, you know, working at the, the games to win, um, you know, having that background experience in gaming um, for everyone that's listening that either works in games or has always had this dream of, you know, starting their own game studio and stuff. Um, what would that process actually look like if I like what? what kind of amount of money would I need? What kind of like, if I, okay, this is the minimum team that you would need to be able to build a game. Um, this is, you know, if, if I could do everything all over again, knowing what I know today, like what would you do differently? And like, what man, what would that look like?
1: You know, so it, it really, it depends on what sort of gaming company you want to start as well or what you have a passion for as well. So, um, there are people who love um, PC and console gaming, right? Uh, Now console gaming is, is a different animal altogether, but uh, the PC market in general has, has seen uh, indie developers succeed. Um, There have been, uh, there have been cases where a lot of indie developers have just literally made a game on their own and um, they have succeeded on Steam or mm-hmm. uh, the issue with that is that uh, the success rate is very low i mean in the games industry in general the success <laughs> rate is very low but with pc gaming it hurts you more because uh, you're spending more time in development mm-hmm. uh, the amount of time you have to spend to get a polished product uh, released is is quite a lot because the expectation for from uh, pc gamers is is quite high mm-hmm but uh, another interesting side is hyper casual which is the space that i'm working in um, yep. now uh, with hyper casual the beauty of hyper casual is that um, it's um, it's firstly the development cycle the initial development cycle that is there it could be between 2 to 3 weeks mm. you know so it so you could literally develop a game prototype in 2 to 3 weeks and test it out in the market now for someone just starting out in game development right all you need is a pc and you need unity or Big box <laughs> on your on your system right so um, from that perspective i think um, once you have that once you're learning game development um, i think it's important to know uh, programming if i was starting a games company today i would i would focus more on the programming side of things than the art side of things and why mm-hmm. i'm saying this is because uh, there are a lot of art assets available in the market um i'm, I'm not trying to sort of underplay the importance of art uh, <laughs> but um, you know, because you're sort of in that situation where you have to be lean and, you know, you're just sort of um, forced into that situation and you still need to make the game and yeah. uh, programming is what eventually builds that game. Mm. Um, there are a lot of art assets available out there that someone can use, uh, a lot of free assets available too, which someone can use and actually end up building a game on Unity. Uh, now, why hyper casual is interesting is because you're making an MVP, you know, so for someone starting out, that that might take them, say, a month and a half, which is not a lot of uh, uh, time in terms of game development, right? Especially when you're just learning game development. Um, yeah. So um, you could you could actually build that MVP and test it out in the market, and you can get data, you can get actual data from people who are installing that app um, mm. to to track what sort of uh, interest is being generated, and also uh, if the game is addictive or not. Um, mm. So generally what hyper-casual publishers do is uh, they test a game in the market. They first test for uh, something called as a cost per install. So the amount of money they're spending on actually generating an install. Mm -hmm. uh, They have certain benchmarks. Say if it's below 30 cents, it means that the game is mass market. It means that the game is marketable. Uh, That means it's worth actually going on to developing the entire game. Whereas if you are at a point where uh, where you see that the game is not marketable, there's no point in making it right because people are not going to be interested in it. So, um, so I think that is the beauty of hypercasual. You you make a game, you say, uh, okay, hey, uh, this game is uh, this game is going out now. It's going to be tested in the market. But if it fails, I'll move on to my next one. I'll try. I'll try again, basically, to try and eventually get to that game which can be scaled. Um, And this is where publishers play a huge part. Um, So publishers are extremely supportive. They're always looking for games out there. So as as a first time game developer starting out, I would say, make a game, make a hyper casual game, look at the hyper casual genre, check out the games, which are there in the top charts or conceptualize something that is not a copycat of these games, Um, try and be unique and and make that game and send it to a publisher and they will be happy to test it at at no cost for you.
0: Mm what is a what is a test entail so if so, i well, like yeah. let's say i i make a little game you know it seems like uh popular in the hyper casual genre right now is kind of those little like runners where you're like you know dodging item, objects and stuff but like Maybe, okay. I, I, maybe I change up the game and I make it where I'm like a little cannon or something. And it's yeah. almost like tower defense, but I have to like shoot the little obstacles and guys that are trying to, you know, come down and, and break my castle or something. Yeah. Um, so let's say I make a little game like that. Um, and I've, I've got a few levels in there um, and I want to send it to a publisher. Like, what exactly does a test entail or what does that look like? So in today's day and age, publishers actually... Literally just test the game
1: in the market. So uh, the process of testing starts with you making a video. You send them a video of your game. Um, say a 30 seconds video. They say, okay, hey, you know what? This game is worth testing. Let's test it out. They usually, they say yes to most games. Unless it's it's a blatant copycat. Um, so um, so they'll tell you, okay, you know what? Give us a 30 seconds video. Give us a 15 seconds video. We will We will take that video. We will run ads on Facebook. Uh, We'll see what the the click-through rate is on that video, on that ad that I'm running, or uh, what the cost per click is. Uh, They have certain benchmarks. So uh, most publishers usually keep a benchmark of uh, greater than 4% for the click-through rate um, or uh, lesser than 30 cents for a cost per click. So what they do is they run ads with these videos that you send them. And if your game passes, crosses these benchmarks, you move on to the next stage, which is which is you actually build out, say, uh, 20 levels or so of the game. You put the game on the store now. So you haven't even put the game on the store till now, right? Um, you've, just, you've just tested things with the video. Um, so now you put the game on the store. Um, now they will test whether the game has good day one retention. Generally, they keep a benchmark of greater than 45% or so for... Uh, day one retention if it crosses um, that metric for day one retention you then go on to build the entire game you put some meta in the game so for example you put uh, coin zoning and you have uh, cosmetics as well in soap cutting we had things like uh, skins for knives you know something as simple as that and there was sort of like a mystery box which you would earn after every five levels you know things to improve retention essentially and to improve the monetization in the game Mm -hmm. um At this point, uh, publishers run another test and if they see that uh, the monetization is working well, uh, you are handed a publishing contract and uh, they go on to eventually publish the game.
0: Hmm. Very cool. How long does that process take? Um, Let's say I get lucky in my first game passes the video test and then I build out 20 levels and I pass the the day one retention test. And then I, you know, how long does each of those steps take when I like go back and have to build out the 20 levels? Is that another like two to three weeks of building stuff out?
1: You know, so what happens is that once your game crosses the CPI and retention test, you know, at that point you have to move very fast because the market is such, right? There could be something similar that can come out say tomorrow even, Mm. Right. And, and as human beings, you know, we think alike, a lot of developers think alike. There have been stories okay. of people, uh, sort of seeing these games being tested and, uh, them copying it as well, mm. you know, so it can, it can get really bad too. And you don't want that to happen to your game. So generally to build a game, a full, a full, uh, published version, um, for a worldwide launch, uh, from the retention test, it would take you around, the um, around three weeks or so
0: so pretty fast. To to yeah. <laughs>
1: that. Yeah. That is, that is extremely fast. Right. Um, and, and you know, because at that stage you're even putting in all the monetization SDKs uh, you're making sure uh, that you're going through uh, the various QA cycles. So the game has to be completely clean as well, because this game is going to be scaled up millions and yeah. millions of users are going to be playing it. Right. So yeah, there, there is a lot that goes through that happens in that, in that three week phase. But as a developer, you have to be ready to sort of commit, say, 12 hours, 12 hours a day, you know, to making sure that that game is out there on time. And Mm. with that 12 hours a day, you can sort of release it in three weeks. It's totally worth it. It's totally worth it, you know, because (laughs) because you see that game going sort of in the top charts in the U.S. And, you know, at that point, it's just it's so gratifying. Right. Yeah,
0: that's pretty cool. So, um Let's talk a little bit about the idea of the, the CPI and an LTV kind of a thing. Um, Cause yeah. obviously if you're spending money to acquire users, there needs to be some sort of ROI, but are there benchmarks that publishers look for? Um, like this is the minimum amount of money I want to see per user versus CPI kind of a thing. I think the, the thing with
1: CPI is that, um, so in the first um, in the first test that you do, the CPI benchmark is uh, below 30 cents. And um, and they would want an ARPU of over 40 cents at least uh, eventually, you know, mm-hmm. so you have that sort of 10 cent margin. The thing is that, um, and this is where publishers uh, do a fantastic job, I mean, besides, besides helping you through that entire process is that uh, when your game goes out and when the game is being scaled, you know, a CPI rises as you're scaling CPI does increase, right? Because mm. it's sort of, you get closer and closer to saturation. Yeah. But uh, what publishers do is that they make a lot of variations of uh, your videos, mm. right? And um, they try and keep that CPI at a lower point in order to improve their margin too. So, and this is, as a developer, you know, you're already involved in this process. You know, you can give them suggestions and uh, they do take your suggestions for sure. But, you know, there's not something that you have to bother with. At the end of the day, the publisher is handling it for you mm. you know. And, and I've seen crazy labs make some fantastic videos for us. And so cutting even till today, you know, we are sort of in the top 200 in the U S and this is because of uh, the amazing amount of work that their video team has done in order to make sure that the CPI stays at a consistent level.
0: Yeah. How does uh, it typically work with a publisher in terms of like what what you are getting paid and, and how that money works in terms of being able to like pay salaries for people in your studio and such? So
1: it's, um, it's on- honestly very lucrative. I think for, uh, especially for an independent studio, it works out really well. I think uh, the minimum amount of money a published uh, hyper-casual game can make is around, um, I would say around $150,000. And this is just for, this is just for the developer. So this wow. is after, after the revenue split and, and revenue splits in general are different with different publishers. Uh, there are some publishers who do, um, who 50, 50. There are some who do an 80, 20, but they give you, uh, a, a bigger amount upfront, which is recoupable. Um, so that you're not at a high risk or because you have to sort of go through a live ops process sure. for that game yeah. too so so different publishers do it in different ways
0: yeah what does live ops typically look like for for hyper casual like I, I i know i've heard of live ops for like an rpg style game where they're planning out like their guild battles once a week and all those other things but like what does that look like you know within a, a hyper casual type game
1: Within hypercasual, uh, you know, in terms of for live ops, it's more about uh, improving certain metrics. So you go in um, to say, um, for, say you go into sort of a week wherein uh, you would be doing an A-B test that you'd be launching on the store. Uh, you need to have a target. So what, what is this A-B test going to give you? Is it going to give me improved uh, retention, which will lead to um, increase uh, an increase in the number of interstitials that are seen? Or, uh, or are we going in with the intention of improving uh, the number of RVs watched, uh, the reward videos are watched per user? In that case, we, uh, we're targeting improving um, reward video monetization. So you need to keep a target in mind. Uh, after having that target in mind, you sort of uh, set up three or four uh, A-B test groups in the build. Um, and you work on four different, on essentially four different things in that specific build. Which is uh, which is then uh, released and it's uh, scaled to a certain number of users, and then after that, all the groups are compared with one another, and whichever group sort of helps you in achieving that target, uh, is applied then to your next to the next version that you put out. Yeah. So this this is an ongoing process, and um, and you know the the funny thing is that um, you could you know live ops. What we've learned is that uh, especially in hyper casual. Uh, Improving your core mechanics really helps a lot in um, Mm. improving metrics. So for example, in soap cutting, we had the system wherein, you know, you would slice the knife, you would uh, sort of move the knife downwards and slice uh, all the pieces of the soap and then move it upwards. But in order to slice the next layer, you would have to leave, uh, you would have to leave the touch on the screen
2: Mm -hmm. and then you
1: have to hold it again. And then you slice the next uh, layer. In terms of retention or, this is this is what we launched with, by the way. And in terms of retention, this was fine. In our uh, in our retention test, uh, we had our over 61% day one. You know, with this, yeah. But uh, during live ops, we changed the system. We made it such that you don't have to leave the screen. You know, you can just move on to the next layer as soon as you're done cutting uh, the top layer. Uh, this in itself improved the day one retention by around three percent. And oh. <laughs> and this was at scale, right? And that that's yeah. that's a massive improvement. And this is just oh, yeah. this is just a core part of the game that we improve. You know, so so improving core mechanics in hyper casual, I think, improves the experience, and in turn, it helps in sort of uh, improving your attention too. And uh, I think that one of the targets for A-B test groups, especially for people who are doing hyper casual now, I think they should focus on um, trying to improve the core as much as possible.
0: Mm. that's very interesting are there any tools that you can use to like better help with some of those live ops things or is is it all mostly you set up in the builds those different tests and things and then you kind of have to release it and just kind of follow up on it or are there things that you can use to kind of do that over the air kind of real time like oh i want to set up this a b test today and then i can just look at the results tomorrow type of a thing
1: um, so, so Crazy Labs uses Firebase uh, to sort of set up the A/B Um, So, with uh, with Firebase, I think uh, I think you can sort of set it up in Unity, uh, query Firebase, and then and then tomorrow you can sort of compare and see the results. And I think even apply uh, apply the result then depending on whatever group is working best. But uh, yeah, besides that, besides that, I'm not
2: aware of. Uh,
0: any <laughs> yeah, I, I've heard of a lot of like really mm-hmm. custom tools. Like I was talking to uh, someone who worked on it was kind of like an RPG type puzzle game, almost like a Puzzles and Dragons. Um, but he said, you know, something that they did that was pretty cool is uh, they made a, a tool that they could basically kind of create you know how you have those tutorial layers where you know if you're playing a match three it'll tell you oh like click these three and it'll turn into a bomb or whatever as they like teach you stuff so they set up this like tutorial tool that they could basically attach to any level um and so they started and they had like five steps of the tutorial and they you know went through that and then they were looking at data and they realized like hey you know, it seems like steps four and five aren't really doing anything. So they stripped those out and then they noticed that there was a big drop off in retention at like seven minutes in, but people that okay. like stayed past that and got to like level nine would, they'd be introduced into like events. And so they are like, well, maybe, um, this has to do with players feeling like, oh, there's nothing else to do in this game. So if we try introducing that at maybe minute seven, you know, maybe our retention will go up. And they ended up doing that and introducing it via their like, um, tutorial tool essentially. Um, and they saw like a 3% increase in day one retention too, which wasn't 61%, but it was like, you know, 20 to 23%, which was pretty good for a, uh, you know, niche RPG type game that they're in. Um, but, the, but the tool sounds amazing. But yeah, the tool. It so, like so yeah. yeah, so it's super flexible. So they could be like, OK, well, we want to introduce this new kind of bomb at level 50 and they could just like do that in the server and it would just like attach to the game. And whenever people hit level 50, they'd now, you know, be integrated with that. So it just seemed super cool to be able to essentially control your game from the server without having to do those you know, that is,
1: that is pretty amazing. That is actually it's so it's, it's very dynamic basically. It's very flexible with uh, changing things around as well on the flag.
0: Yeah. I mean it was completely custom for the game and stuff built, but <laughs> it seems oh, like cool.
1: okay, okay, yeah. sorry, sorry. It was built for that specific Yeah, game. It was an oh, okay, in-house okay, tool. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, okay, I see.
0: But uh nice. oh, that that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um So a lot of live ops is just like testing out different things and integrating things, you know, to see if you can boost that ARPU or those, you know, retention numbers. Um, Have you ever introduced any sort of like events like, Oh, we're going to do a Halloween event, um, you know, where there's like skins and stuff that are, you know, I don't know.
1: We do. So we have put in skins in, uh, in our games, now Halloween skins, in fact, um, yeah. in uh, acrylic nails. So acrylic nails not, is another game that uh, of ours that Crazy Labs just published. Uh, mm. So we have we have put in skins in uh, acrylic nails, and and yeah, it has it has definitely improved um, things slightly. But uh, so, but in terms of events, there's nothing there's nothing big that we do. I, I yeah. think it's more sort of about um, supporting the game with uh, with skins. So it's it's a small addition. Morgan but updates. I think, I think, uh, yeah, but, uh, it has helped. Uh, but from what I've heard from people is that usually in a hyper casual, it doesn't help to that much of an extent. Um, it does help in terms of lowering CPI, mm. but, uh, in terms of actually improving engagement, it doesn't really help to that much of an extent.
0: Yeah. I think that makes sense. You know, if the game isn't fun to players, it's probably, you know, adding a few little things is not really going to make it much more fun. So it all kind of starts at the core of, okay, does the video of the gameplay actually look fun enough to get people to click and engage with it? And then the second question is, okay, once people actually have a chance to engage with it and play the game, you know, is it fun enough that they're willing to come back? And if you kind of answer those two questions, then you can kind of figure out the rest of it.
1: Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's exactly what it is.
0: Cool. So uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, ROAS. Can you explain what, you know, ROAS is and what it means for someone that, you know, maybe has made some games before, but has no idea about marketing or scaling up or user acquisition type of things.
1: You know, honestly, uh, you know, I, I will not be able to explain it to you to like a very good degree because this is something that, at least in our partnership with Crazy Labs and and developers with publishers in general, publishers handle this side of things, right? Mm. So, return on ad spend is something that, you know, I haven't I haven't sort of like experienced to that much of an extent. But um, of course, we have tried uh, uh, publishing games uh, in house as well, sort of like two years back or so. And it's sort of it's it's basically the margin that you would make from your um, from your ad spend to your RPU, right and uh, I think in hyper casual what they do is they calculate the the day one ARPU and the day seven RPU. so um, so generally they try to sort of uh, have that seven day ARPU in mind before uh, having a target CPI mm-hmm. and that is how that is how publishers usually uh, scale their games
0: yeah do you see them typically trying to recoup the full cpi within seven days or or what is the average life cycle of a player you know in a hyper casual game like i assume they're not going to stick around and play your game you know every day for years like a candy crush saga but like what is the average kind of life cycle for a player so so the day
1: seven average day seven retention in hyper casual is around 10 percent right so it is it is very low um but yeah, I think I think most users drop off after day two, day three, and um, and that is the reality of hypercasual. I think the ones that sort of stick around do contribute a lot to uh, your revenue, but uh, eventually by day seven you've lost ninety percent of your users. Yeah. yeah
0: have you guys ever messed around with the the new idea of hybrid casual games where they're, you know, you still have those hyper casual mechanics in the beginning, but it's more focused on like the meta and, you know, like the, the Archer um, like Art of War. And, and there's one other one that just came out too. Yeah. Um, we
1: haven't honestly, because hybrid casual is a lot of, there's a lot of buzz about uh, hybrid casual uh, in the market now. The thing is that, you know, Arch, I feel, this is my personal opinion only, but I feel that Arch was a fantastic success. And yeah, it's a, it's a good template. But, you know, to replicate that, how much time are you going to be spending on replicating that then? Is it is it as, as good as the amount of time spent in just making a normal casual game, mm. right, which sort of goes to scale eventually? Because even with hybrid casual, are you going through the sort of like a process which is in between for hyper-casual and casual. If that is the case, even then, you know, you are spending quite a bit of time on on development. So for me personally, I think um, we would not uh, sort of at least look at hybrid casual for the time being. I think we are sort of comfortable in hyper-casual. And uh, we enjoy the fact that we have to make uh, so many games every month. (laughs) And, you know, it sort of like refreshes our mind. I don't know... What the nitty-gritties are for something like hyper casual, I don't think there's a set template in the market to go about the process of developing hyper casual, uh, hybrid casual. Uh, why I like hyper casual is that there is that set sort of template, that set process uh, that has been established that we've established as well as a company uh, internally, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And,
1: and yeah, and we we enjoy that. I think.
0: What do you think about multiplayer in? And- hyper casual games. Um, I, I know for myself personally, you know, even playing a game like Clash Royale, like it, it's, yeah. it's a pretty repetitive game if you were just playing it by yourself, but what makes it actually interesting is having that other person that you have to yeah. kind of beat and challenge and, and deal with yeah. as you encounter. Have yeah. you seen much multiplayer usage? Is that something you've ever done or wanted to do?
1: I don't think I don't think I've seen uh, multiplayer in uh, hyper casual at least, and and you know I I think, and the reason I think is that when you put in multiplayer, there's a server cost that kicks in, mm-hmm. right? Now publishers are working with low margins in hyper casual,
2: mm.
1: right? If that sort of uh, margin is again further depleted with uh, multiplayer. You know, besides and besides that, it also brings its own set of multiple issues, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, but if that margin is eaten into, then does it make sense to do a multiplayer game in hyper casual? You know, so I think I think that is the reason why we haven't seen multiplayer in hyper casual, actually.
0: Mm, it's interesting. Yeah, I was playing a game. I think Supersonic Studios published it, Hide, yeah. hide and Seek. And yeah. what I couldn't figure out is if the players that you're playing with are uh real people or not like they're they're, they're named not real and they seem they're they're not so it's all just they're kind not, of generated yeah it's
1: fake so hypercasual does this it's called uh. io games so mm. so they are uh, they, it's just ai to just give it the feel that you're playing against real people
0: yeah so you feel yeah. like you're you're skillful yeah, yeah. i I you know I was playing that and I was like I don't feel like I should be have been able to find you know this last guy because I can <laughs> dodge around the corner here and and be good, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. you no know, that's that's fascinating, yeah I was yeah. just you know thinking you know going back to my cannon game you know back in the day I don't even remember what it was but it, I always got a kick out of playing it like with my dad where you you both have cannons and there's like a hill and you have to, oh like, yeah 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 scoot up over you it up. and stuff yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, just the challenge of being able to, like, place your cannon and then can you calculate the angles and stuff before they... Yeah, can, yeah. So that was it. such
1: a great game. I, I remember that game. Um, I think... I, I forgot the name, but I remember the yeah. game very clearly <laughs> in my head. In fact, Legendary, this other uh, studio game, uh, yep. game publisher that does casual, they made a variation of this too.
0: Really? As <laughs> a thanks game, yeah.
1: But sorry, yeah, I interrupted awesome. you. What were you saying?
0: Oh, no, I was just thinking through. I was like, you know would it be that difficult from a server perspective to, you know, be able to support something like that? And would that extra moderate layer of, okay, now there's a person that just gets to place it and I play against, you know, add that much of a cost, but yeah, I, I don't know what, you know, that would cost from a server perspective, but you know, are you, are you getting an ad after each play, you know, does that increase the retention and the ARPU and, and everything else in there? So
1: yeah yeah exactly and and another thing with hyper casual is that you know users now expect to get into the game they don't want to go through sort of like a matchmaking system anymore yeah you know they want to just in hyper casual they want to just get in play get done with it you know they're short sessions they're like sort of 5 to 7 minute type sessions yeah. so um so with multiplayer another issue is that matchmaking is is something that takes up uh, time as well, <laughs> you know, or, or, you know, in the case of the tank game, for example, you know, it could be something that is asynchronous. So if you're waiting for mm-hmm. your opponent to sort of play his turn, then, you know, you don't want to do that. You just want to sort yeah. of get in. It's a it's get quick in. session and you want to get done. With it.
0: So probably a better variation would be to make it feel like it's a real person that's playing it, but it's all just kind of like, Oh, AI that's dragging and dropping. Exactly. It and like <laughs> exactly. Kind of thing. So, you know, you get the feel that it's an opponent, but it's not quite there. that's
1: interesting. Exactly. That's what, that's what the <laughs> industry does now.
0: I like it. So okay. how many games does your studio put out, you know, per month in terms of like games that get into that? that test phase. Like, you know, if I wanted to start producing hyper casual games, like roughly how many games do you think it would take for me to pass that first CPI test? And then how many would it take to be able to pass that D one retention test? And are there any things that I can do to kind of increase the likelihood that I'll be able to pass both of those tests? That's, that's such a difficult, question. <laughs> uh, because, because, you know, um, the
1: thing is that, um, okay. Uh, regarding the first part um so we as a studio we do around um, eight to ten games a month we put eight to ten games a month for testing um besides that uh, we are branded as crazy labs india we're working in our partnership is uh, is really good with crazy labs and in sure. june we sort of did a deal with them where you know we were branded as crazy labs india and we were working we are working with so uh, indian awesome. game developers uh, mm and sort of mentoring them, incubating them to sort of uh, help them improve in terms of uh, developing hyper-casual games. So yeah. we have uh, we have three studios who are working with us full-time as well. Um, and besides that, there are a couple of other studios who are working with us on an on-and-off basis. But mm-hmm. uh, what we say to them is that uh, every developer in your team essentially should have the speed to do around one prototype every two weeks. So two prototypes a month should be something that uh, should be the output that you should expect from each developer yeah. in your team. And that is the rule of thumb that we follow. And uh, that is what we work with. Um, in terms of the number of games that it takes to get to that hit game, this is something that varies completely. Right, There are people I've spoken to who sort of done 60 games even and i've not seen success till now because hyper casual has become very very competitive right because it's it's such a mm-hmm. easy to get into space as well right yeah. and um, so so it's difficult it's difficult to sort of get that hit game um i would say an average would probably you could you could get a hit game in probably every every 30 that you do maybe um but you can, you can improve your odds uh, by sort of looking at trends, uh, keeping an eye on the top charts, um, and trying to predict what the next trend is going to be in the space too. And I think that is that is probably the most important aspect. How do you say mm. what is gonna work next? Is there is no proper science behind it? Um, it probably boils down to intuition, it boils down to having a look at a lot of these games and playing a lot of these games, speculating, and then eventually sort of experimenting. Um, This is what happened with soap cutting as well. Before soap cutting, uh, simulation as a genre had just started picking up. And ASMR as a category within simulation wasn't something that was done before. So um, we looked at YouTube, we saw that um, in general... Um, ASMR related to cutting soaps was very popular amongst people. Uh, That's what made us realize that the concept could be a mass market. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: this is what, this is the one time when we sort of predicted a trend after soap cutting, a lot of ASMR games uh, came out, Mm -hmm. you know, so trying to predict that trend is, is what will, (laughs) what can get you uh, to your next success, but it's very difficult you could also look at uh, the top chart games and try to mix and match uh, game mechanics or gameplay. You know, if there is something in one particular game you see that is really good and something else in another game that you see is really good. You could try to combine it without sort of like latently copying it, add mm-hmm. your own flavor to it. And you, you can try that out in the market too.
0: I like it. Have you guys ever tried creating like a video of gameplay first? Versus spending two weeks in doing the prototype, or is it just faster to prototype the games out themselves?
1: Uh, it depends. It depends on what the concept is. So, for example, uh, some, doing something like fluid simulations is difficult in uh, Unity, right? And that would take uh, more development time. So we have we have in the past actually done uh, just animations that we've created on Blender and then tested them out in the market. Mm-hmm.
0: What about art style? Like, um, you know, you can have a prototype of a game that, you know, you have two players that are shooting balls at each other. And, you know, when you actually apply different art to that, that could be a very, very different look and feel of the game. Like, have you found that, you know, you've tested different art styles and found one works versus the other does, does that come into play at all, or something that people should be thinking about?
1: I think uh, I think in the initial stage, firstly, it's very important that you don't over-polish on art. It should be good, but uh, you shouldn't over-polish it. Secondly, what we've seen is that um, soft colors usually work really well. I think um, there is uh, there are a lot of examples now in the space with hyper casual games, uh, and you know you can sort of take that asset and use it in your game. I, it's, it's important that you don't sort of try to go too far away into a niche art style or something that won't be mass market. I think uh, just having softer colors, making your uh, game vibrant usually ends up working well. Um, with simulation, what we've seen is that, um, again, the art style can be uh, can be something that, is, uh, that uses soft colors, but um, trying to replicate that uh, realism, not in terms of making it absolutely realistic, but uh, in terms of uh, having a gaming sort of outlook for that simulation is what works well. Um, I think more important than the art style is actually the game or uh, the gameplay and the game feel. So for uh, example, with, uh, with a game that we just did called Acrylic Nails, um, we have this process where uh, the user can spread uh, powder on um, on a sticker to form the nail uh, mm. now that process in itself has a system where uh, there's a powder ball that is placed on the finger and it's it's blobby it's sort of it's a soft body and then it's spread mm. you no know, we spent a lot of time actually trying to replicate the real life uh, action yeah. the real life process into the game and uh, eventually that is what helped that game to pass uh, the test mm. So trying to replicate the real-life simulation to an in-game simulation as closely as possible is very important.
0: For that first video, uh, the like 15 seconds or 30 seconds of gameplay that you do, does it matter what that looks like? Are there certain levels or certain ways that you're playing or like losing at the end or something like that, that, you know, you found has a pretty big increase or can that, is that all...
1: Yeah, I think, um,
0: I think the look should be good. It should be decent.
1: Uh, you know, it's not very hard to replicate the art styles that are there already in the space. Uh, so you can have a look at the games that are there in the top charts and replicate that. But besides that, um, the best practices for these 15 and 30 seconds videos is that you need to get your most interesting moment out in the first five seconds. Mm. So users are scrolling through Instagram or Facebook, you know, when they come across these ads, and you literally have three to five seconds to grab their attention, right? So your first three to five seconds has to be the most interesting aspect or something that will grab the user's attention. At the end of the video, you you should have something that is gratifying, something like a celebration. So a confetti celebration has become a standard practice now in hypercasual, you know, so you can have that sort of confetti animation and your, uh, and your characters maybe dancing or whatever it is, you know, that suits your game. But these are the two important things. Three to five seconds, grab the user's attention at the end. Show that that end moment. Um, Another thing that helps is uh, making videos of of someone failing at the game. So, for example, you have a puzzle, you know, that uh, on the face of it looks very obvious to do uh, to do. But in the video, you're showing someone who's uh, who's not doing it properly or who's screwing up constantly, (laughs) you know. So that sort of induces that feeling in the, in the person watching it that, Hey, you know what? I can do this better or that's not how you do it. I'll show you how to do it. And then they'll go and install it.
0: Mm. So going back to my canon game, you know, maybe like I, 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 I'm purposely like missing the the thing and they're like, come on, like I can do that. And, you know. Gets you to go in there. That's exactly, a- exactly. It looks so simple to the to
1: the person who's watching it that they'd be like, okay, dude, this guy's a noob in
0: the term used in the gaming industry. Yep. Let
1: me go, let me try
0: this out. So if I'm working with a publisher, do I only really get like one shot at that initial video? Or you know, would they test several different videos? Or if I work on the game a little bit longer and now it's refined, will they give it another go? Or is there certain frameworks or cutoffs where they're just like, Oh, you know, this game is done.
1: So, so I've, I've worked uh, closely with crazy labs. So I can tell you sort of their perspective on this. Um, yeah. what they, what they do is that if, um, if you're close to the benchmark, they will, they will definitely give you another shot at making another video. In fact, they will give you their suggestions as well. Their, their game design team gets involved. They give you mm-hmm. suggestions on how they can improve the video. Their video team has a look at, um, your video and uh, even they sort of uh, pitch into uh, giving you suggestions on how you can
0: improve it Wow, that sounds really awesome so you know uh, so crazy labs I feel like that's a large part of what they do is just making those different videos and stuff so if you're you know close to on par you kind of get that additional help and stuff from them so you can kind of go back have you ever made a second video and have you know implemented those suggestions and seen you know really big improvements
1: uh, we we did one recently, in fact, I, I Crazy Lab suggested uh, a few changes, we uh, did one, but um, it didn't cross the benchmark, but it did, it did improve things significantly. Uh, in fact, this was a video uh, for which they just had sort of um, instinct that, you know, if we do so and so, it will sort of at least get closer to the benchmark. And they were right. I mean, yeah. we changed a few things around and it actually sort of helped us to um, get closer to the benchmark. Um, And I I think this is the great thing about Crazy Labs is that their game design team gets involved with you. They are sort of more hands-on with the developer. And, you know, they are working with a lot of expertise because they've seen, they published a lot of games. So they've seen a lot of things in the market as well, right? They have sort of firsthand experience and they're sort of transmitting that to you. And that is where they really add a lot of value.
0: Yeah. Do you think that working closely with a publisher like Crazy Labs has, like, improved the quality of output from your studio and the stuff that you guys are learning and, you know, the game quality that you're putting out?
1: 100%. 100% for sure. Because uh, I think, um, you know, when we sort of get into game development, we're big headed in the sense that we feel like, oh, you know what, we know everything. (laughs) You know, but there are a lot of things in the market that, uh, a lot of small things, a lot of big things that you pick up when you're working with uh, with a big publisher, especially like Crazy Labs, you know, because we've we worked with them. Uh, so six months we did live ops for soap cutting. In fact, it's going on even till today. And uh, yeah. it's throughout well, the entire process, we had so much in terms of learnings. Um, acrylic Nails, again, this is something we, we started working with them on acrylic nails in July. And, um, you know, they're, uh, they're technical artists, they're... Uh, the UI artists, you know, all of these guys they're pitching in, they're sort of helping us improve even from a technical perspective, even from mm-hmm. an execution perspective. And that has sort of helped us to um, learn as to what sort of standards are required, what sort of standards are there in their team because that is what we need to match up to at the end of the day. And uh, And, you know, we are sort of now transmitting those learnings into our other games as well. So, it's definitely helped us improve significantly. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. So you know, let's say I finish my Canon game and I, yep. I'm like ready. Like, what what all would I need to have if I wanted to, you know, bring it to Crazy Labs to start some of that that testing phase type stuff? Um,
1: I think you can just you can just reach out to them, or you can you can send it to me. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, but you can just uh, send them a video, a fifteen second and a thirty seconds video. Of the game, hmm. and um, and you know if it's if it's something unique, if it's something that's not been done before, if it's not a blatant copycat, they will go out there. They'll they will say, okay, uh, hey, let's test it. Cool.
0: That sounds great. Well, I I know we're just about out of time here, um, but I like to. Do one last question because we are on the mastering retention podcast. So, uh, what is one tip or trick um, that you've learned over the years that you've seen boost retention for players?
2: Um,
1: I, I mentioned this before as well, and I think I think focusing on the absolute core mechanic of the game really helps in boosting retention in hyper casual. Mm -hmm. Um, I gave that one instance of uh, the knife. I'll give you another example, actually. So in um, soap cutting, what we had done is when you slice a layer, uh, Mm -hmm. if suppose we had done it in the initial launch, we had done it in such a way that suppose if the user swipes very fast, you know, uh, all the cubes don't get cut off from the soap, from the layer. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we had done this intentionally because we didn't want users to frantically swipe you know, we want them to have sort of like a Zen-like experience, you know, play yeah. slowly and calmly. But what we realized is that, you know, once we sort of A-B tested this uh, in such a way that even if you're cutting it slightly faster, you know, uh, all, the pieces, uh, all the pieces on that layer get cut off irrespective of how fast you're swiping. You know, that was, that is again, very core to the game, right? Mm-hmm. And that yep. helped again in improving the retention by two to three percent. Wow. you know and um, and what we realized is that users don't end up playing frantically even then even though they they have that option they don't want to rush through they will still play at their own pace but even if they're swiping slightly fast by mistake all the uh, cubes are getting cut off and they're still having a
2: nice experience
0: yeah. Do you have any like, uh, analytics type tools that you guys use so you can actually see like, what is the average swipe speed that a player is doing for soap or, you know, anything yeah. like that? Uh, Crazy labs has their internal tools so to track uh, these sort of things. Cool. So working with the publisher, you might also get access to tools and stuff that they've kind of built out and you're able to add into your games essentially. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Definitely. So, the amount of support that
1: you get from a publisher is is absolutely incredible right because besides game design besides them helping you in ui you know they have their entire qa team they have their monetization sdk so to make sure that you are extracting the most amount of value from the ads that are being shown to the users you know so they maximize monetization besides that um, they have the amazing analytics team we get amazing detailed reports from their analytics team outlining um, outlining all the say for example the groups that we're testing out you know and and they go they go into a deeper analysis and they sort of try and figure why certain things are working and certain things are not working you know mm. so it's not just about hey group b is working let's apply it you know we sort of analyze it we, we dig yeah. deeper into it
0: mm. So, so, essentially, working with Crazy Labs, they kind of give you the monetization SDKs and kind of help you get integrated because I I have heard dealing with third party SDKs, especially monetization SDKs, they can kind of clash with each other and you've got all these random yeah. unity errors and, and things like that. And then, oh, it's a massive pain. <laughs> so, that, that sounds helpful to get some help there. And then, yeah. you know, it sounds like you can also get access to their analytics team, which uh, yeah. I I assume is also very valuable, you know, not having to hire all those folks internally and spend that time. Definitely the data. Definitely, and
1: and the best thing about the SDK is, you know, they actually integrate it for you. So they uh-huh. will take your project, they'll integrate it for you. So it's just because because you know, as developers, we've had this experience in the past where, like you said, we're putting in different uh, yep. ad tools and they're sort of clashing with one another. It's yeah, a one month sort of goes in and it just. <laughs> um, incorporating monetization, you know, that doesn't happen with them. That's
0: great. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, I know we're about at time here, but is there anything else, you know, you think is worth sharing with folks today as you're thinking about doing hyper-casual or thinking about working with a publisher or thinking about working with Crazy Labs?
1: Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think firstly, if you're looking to work in hyper-casual as a developer, whether you're starting out, whether you have two years, five years experience, I think it's, it's important to work with a publisher and why I'm saying this is because the kind of experience that you get working with them or, you know, by having your game scale up to millions and millions of users, you know, is something that can't be replicated. Otherwise, unless you have crazy marketing dollars, I mean, you know, even I would say even then, even then work with a publisher, just that expertise is invaluable more than even the the amount of money that you spend on marketing. You know, um, besides that um, besides that i would say one important thing is just keep an eye on the top charts i think uh, make sure you're building something that is unique you're not copying things and you know uh, try and differentiate yourself from uh, from what others are doing
0: yeah that's great <laughs> Well, uh I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today and I really hope we can have you back on the podcast soon. This has been so enlightening. Um really appreciate it. Um and I assume if people want to get in contact with Crazy Labs, it's just crazylabs.com. Oh, it's crazylabs.com. Yes. Cool. All right. Well, thank yeah. you so much. Have a good All one. All
1: right. All right. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me.